City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. So on a foggy fall morning a few weeks ago, uh, just a couple of miles from the shore of Lake Michigan, on the banks of the Black River, 40 teenagers, maybe 20-year-olds, gathered for what is probably the craziest event at any college across the country. In the little town of Holland, Michigan, the freshman and sophomore classes of Hope College have an event that they call the pull. This event is like nothing you have ever seen. It is a giant tug of war that takes place across a river. The rope that they use for this is over 300 feet long. It's normally six inches in diameter, except something happens. Because 18 at a time, the freshman and sophomore face off against one another and they pull this rope. The pull can last up to three hours, and it's not uncommon for several students on both sides of the river to be hospitalized because of how insane this is. This, remember I told you the rope was six inches? When they start to pull on this, that rope is under such tension that it goes down to four inches wide. It compresses under the stress, and for hours... And hours, these students pull, trying to drag their counterparts into the river, trying to get as much rope over to their side. It's capped at three hours. The fastest time is uh, two uh, minutes and 57 seconds. One class pulled 150 feet to their side of the river. That was not a good year. Um, most years it lasts about two hours. And if you go online and look it up, the pictures of these people who are participating in this are wild. They dig pits for themselves. They put boards at the end of the pits so they have things to pull up against. It is insane. It is grueling. And it's interesting. Because in the pull, no one can be the hero. No single person can ever be the hero of the team because at the end of the day, you are pulling against 18 other students on the other side of the river. No one is strong enough to overcome those odds. And so not only is it a sight to behold, but it is an incredible metaphor for people working together, from students that come to Hope College from across the country to put their hand on the rope together and pull. And there's something that we look at that, and there's something idealistic about that, isn't there? About these people grabbing onto the rope, coming from different backgrounds, coming from different parts of the country, and working together. Our culture loves this idea, right? We love the idea of everybody coming to 
uh, a place where we can all discuss things, where we can have a discussion that, that transcends political parties and race and class. We would love for that to happen. We always talk about how it would be great if we could heal the ways that our country is divided, the way our culture is divided. We are very excited about that, but here's the problem. Where is that happening? Our culture loves the idea of coming together, of healing our divides. But where is it happening? Oftentimes when we get together, how quickly does it descend into a shouting match? How quickly do we become tribal? Do we become partisan? Do we make excuses for people like ourselves? I think it's often. You know, I was thinking about places that we come together, and I was thinking, well, you know, what about sports, right? Rich, poor, black, white, every sort of spectrum. Everybody loves sports, but even in the past year and a half, two years, sports themselves have become politicized, right? Everything in our culture yearns for us to be united, but at the same time, everything in our culture pulls at us. We struggle to work together for a few reasons. One of the reasons that we struggle to work together is there's no sort of underlying, uniting idea that we can all agree on. What's the one big idea that we can all agree on? I imagine if you were to poll 20 people, you would get probably 16 different answers, right? And so if we're all starting from different places, it's hard to put our hand on the rope. And not only that, we all instinctively want to put ourselves first. We instinctively are looking out for our own interest. Maybe on a good day, our family's interest. Maybe on our most altruistic day, our friend's interest. But at the end of the day, the bent of our heart is towards putting ourselves first. What's interesting is this is not a new problem. This is not a, a problem that we've made up here in 21st century America and 21st century St. Petersburg. This is not new. We didn't invent this. This has been going on for ages untold. And in fact, the Apostle John saw this happening in some of the churches that he loved and pastored. And so this morning, as we've been uh, looking for the past few weeks at the, the shortest books of the Bible, the one-chapter books of the Bible, we're going to look this morning at John's third letter, at 3 John. Right there with 2 John, there one is barely shorter than the other. They make up two of the shortest books in the entire New Testament. And so I'd like you to stand as I read this letter from the Apostle John, 3 John says this, The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, 
accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write it with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. This problem of being uh, ununified, this problem of putting ourselves first is something that John saw in the church. This letter was probably written to the church at Pergamum just outside of Ephesus where John would sometimes go and, and served as sort of a pastor for the area. But he noticed something in this church. There's sort of some good guys and some bad guys. Did, did it kind of shock you that John like laid it out on the line? It wasn't sort of like a low-key, like, hey, there are people among you who do bad things. No, he's like, hey, Diotrephes, that dude is bad. There, that's sort of amazing when you think about it. How often, even in the pages of the Bible, do you see the apostles going, that guy, right there, I'm going to say his name, that's not okay. We don't see that very often. So what was the problem? The problem was this idea that there would be people, traveling preachers who would come to town. And they would come to town and Gaius would say, oh, let me take care of this for you. Let us provide you with a place to stay. We'll provide you with food if you need anything for your journey. We will take care of you. You can come and speak at our house church. You can be a part of what we're doing. And Diotrephes was doing something quite different. Diotrephes was not accepting these people. And in fact, he was shaming anybody who did. Now this may seem like a problem that is a little bit foreign to us, but as we dig down a little bit, what we see as we read this text is our natural bent to put ourselves first. The other word for this, putting yourselves first, is pride. And what happens is our pride stifles our generosity and our hospitality. And when generosity and hospitality are stifled, community is killed. So I want to start by looking at the, the sort of antagonist of this text, of this letter. This, this guy, Diotrephes. John says that, first of all, he likes to put himself first. He is proud. He always is looking out for number one. But it's not just that he's looking out for number one. It's not just that he's putting himself first. He's also, uh, I, I love this, talking nonsense. Right? This would be, uh, if we were saying this in the sort of common vernacular of our day, he was throwing shade at everyone else around them. 
And as he was throwing shade at them, he was also refusing the authority of the apostles. And then, if this wasn't enough, anybody who opposed him, anybody who said, no, I think, I think these people who, who are coming to preach Jesus to us are okay, he would put them out of the church. Now, it's easy to sort of read this description and go, yeah, that's a bad guy. I'm not like that. Give me the gold star, Justin, and we will move on, and our sermon will be just fine. Everything's going to be all right. The problem is that while most of us are not the sort of loud, braggadocious, NFL diva receiver sort of proud, most of us do have a sort of quiet pride. Something more subtle. Something that we have learned to socially hide. Because even in our culture, being loudly and boisterously proud, that's not uh, well looked upon. That's frowned upon. So what have we done? We have learned to cloak our hide. Cloak our pride. Or to hide. Sometimes sentences don't come out the way you want them to. We have learned to bury that pride so that no one can see it, but we still have it. Let me give you a few examples of how we do this. How often do you and I cloak our selfish ambition with what looks like hospitality? How often do the people that we invite out to meals, that we invite to our house, that we want to connect with, how often are those the people that can advance us? How often do we say, you know, it'd be nice if my boss really liked me, so I'm going to have my boss over for dinner. That way I'm ingratiated to him, so when things come along, guess what? Who does the boss like? Who is the boss not going to fire? Me. How often do we use our hospitality as a quiet cloak for our own advancement? How often is our kindness motivated not by wanting to be genuinely kind to somebody else, but rather wanting to be kind so that someone else is in our debt? You see, oftentimes what happens in our hearts as we use things like hospitality as a way to manipulate circumstances to our good. We use kindness to manipulate others to owe us. At the end of the day, what we're doing in all those scenarios, while our actions may look good, what's going on underneath of those actions is actually kind of ugly. It's selfishness. It's putting ourselves first. We do this in the same way when we want so dearly to save face. When we want so dearly for the perception that we want other people to have of us to remain in place. How often do you run and hide anything that is unseemly about your life from everyone you can? How often do I do that? You see, I do this a lot. The way that this comes out in my life is oftentimes when I am the most frustrated 
is when the facade, the mask that I want you to see of me, the perception I want you to have of me, when that cracks, when that breaks, when that has light seeping through it, that's when I get the most frustrated. Point in case, this happened to me last night. I had forgotten to do several things about our meeting after church today. Um, I forgot to arrange childcare uh, for our meeting after church today. Just completely slipped my mind. Uh, and until last night, I had forgotten to make any sort of visual aids for any sort of PowerPoint. And I was like really mad. I snapped at my wife, snapped at my kids. Why? Why was I so frustrated? So, so you forgot to find some childcare, right? Who cares? You know, so, so you got to stay up tonight and do the PowerPoint instead of watching Netflix. Like, look, tough beans, Justin. This is the way life goes. No, the problem was is that if anybody found out that I had left something undone, that I waited to the last minute to do something, maybe that's not good leadership. Maybe that makes me a leader not worth following. And I want you to think of me as a leader worth following. And so I can't have any cracks in that. I can't have any, any sort of way that that might not be the case. And so when it comes down to it, and I don't have all my stuff together, I get frustrated. And when I'm doing that, I'm not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ agrees with me that I am not a leader worth following. That Jesus is. That I don't have to hold myself up. I don't have to hold my righteousness of, I've got it all together. I know when to get babysitters. I do my PowerPoints on time. Look at me. I have it all together. Right? No. The gospel reminds me that I don't. The gospel reminds us that we are quick to hide behind the masks that we create to show off in front of everybody else and not be ourselves. This is the kind of person Diotrephes was. This is the kind of person he was. But what's beautiful is this text gives us a contrast to that. It doesn't just say, here's the bad guy. This text gives us a picture of what the good guys, what the opposite of Diotrephes was like. And that was... Gaius. And Gaius in this text was praised for both his generosity and his hospitality. While the text doesn't use the word hospitality here, it's clearly what it's talking about. When Paul, several times in the New Testament, talks about hospitality, he uses this really interesting word. He uses the word Philoxenos. Now, I don't love to say Greek words during sermons, but I think this is meaningful because the idea behind hospitality that Paul is teaching, that John is reflecting on here, is literally the love of strangers. That's what hospitality was. It was the love of strangers. Loving those who are different than you. You see, it's very easy for us to be hospitable to people who are like us, right? That's easy, right? When I have my friends over for dinner 
and they know, oh, hey, I'll bring this. Oh, you're cooking that? I'll grab some of this. And like, that's super easy. When my friends who know that I have three boys and the home, uh, our home is like in a constant state of disarray on account of having three boys, and like I know I have those friends who it's easy for them to go, eh. So I found gum under my chair. He got three boys. Ah, and we laugh and we move on, right? This is, those sort of friends are easy to love, aren't they? What about those who are different than us? How quick are we to love people who are culturally different than us? Who have a different set of class and economic expectations than us? How quick are we to love those who are politically different than us? Eh. Oftentimes we're not so good at that. But when the Bible gives us a picture of hospitality, what hospitality is, is loving those who are different than us and doing it on a regular basis. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, one of the things that City Church does well is the way that they are hospitable to one another. I'm not bragging on me, I'm bragging on the church, so it doesn't count, right? But you come to a game night, and you'll see Republican donors playing games with people who have marched for Democratic causes. When you come to game night, you will see people with six-figure incomes playing games, having a drink, relaxing on the couch with people who are below the poverty line. When you come to things like our small groups, you are finding a place where people from all sorts of walks of life, from different cultures in many cases, are gathering together to share a meal and to pray for one another. City Church, keep up the good work with that. That is significant. It was interesting. This week we had uh, two different folks, two different couples over to our house, and one of the couples, the husband wasn't a Christian, the wife was, and the other couple were both Christians, but it came up both times how City Church is diligent to be in community with one another, even those who are different than them. City Church, this is one of the greatest ways that we can communicate who Jesus is to our culture. It's not through fancy words. It's not through cleverly articulated arguments. At the end of the day, it's through the presence of Jesus in our community. That's hospitality. That's the opposite of putting yourself first. That's putting yourself second. Because that sort of hospitality is hard. Because you know what it means? It means we're going to have awkward conversations with people who are very different than us. We're going to have a lot of, oh, moments, aren't we? Right? Oh, you don't think the way I do? Oh, okay. And yet we continue in community. We're going to have a lot of moments where we sort of say, oh, you, you, you do what? Huh? And yet we continue to love, continue to break bread, continue to enjoy one another in community. That sort of community is sacrificial. That sort of community doesn't just happen. It requires self-sacrifice. But not only was, was Gaius complimented for the way that he showed hospitality, but also for his generosity, for the way that not only did he bring these folks in, but for the way that he sent them out 
And John said that when you do that, when you send them out, when you support these folks, you're actually partnering with them. See, all of us at City Church have different gifts. Some of us are great at one thing. Some of us are great at other things. But part of the beauty of the church is that we are all generously loving and serving one another with the gifts that we have been given. Whether those gifts are the time that we have because of our stage in life, whether those gifts are the the treasure, the, the money that we have, whether those gifts are the talents that we have been given, we are generous and loving others. You think about the poll that I talked about earlier. It's interesting when you watch videos of the poll because it's not what you would think. You know, I would think that this would all be six foot something, 250 pound plus guys that are involved in the poll. And because they've had 120 years of doing this over and over, strategies have come along. And one of the things that they have found is it is not best to have just a team full of giant bruisers. That teams like that are imbalanced. That you need fast endurance, that you need fast and sort of durable endurance guys as well. That you need both. City Church has a beautiful picture of what the church is. Not all of us are the same. Not all of us have the same gifts. But when we are generously giving to one another, generously giving to our common goals, we see what God is doing. So we should be more generous. We should be more hospitable. It would be easy to walk away from this letter that John wrote and say, yes, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I'm going to set a reminder on my phone so that at 8 o'clock in the morning it says, be more hospitable today. And I'm going to think about that and I'm going to tie my shoes a little bit tighter and I'm going to be more hospitable. And and then I'm going to set another reminder for the next day that says, be more generous. I'm going to tie my shoes extra tight and I'm going to try really hard, and I'm going to be more, and we, and we think that this, the message of this text is to try harder, to bear down on generosity, to bear down on hospitality. The problem is, is if any of you have ever tried that, it just doesn't work. You can't effort your way into generosity. You can't effort your way into hospitality. Let me give you a perfect example of this. Most husbands know. Most husbands who love football know that more often than not, the trash needs to be taken out during the fourth quarter. For some reason, I can, the, the trash cannot need to be taken out for six days and 23 hours a week. But do you know when the trash does need to be taken out? When Ryan Fitzpatrick is once again somehow leading this improbable comeback, and I have no idea why we're even still in this game, and that's about the time that the trash needs to be taken out. And oh, I'll take the trash out. Fine. I'll do it. But you are everybody in the house knows, and probably some of the neighbors know. 
I'm not happy about it. <laughs> this is not what I want to be doing right now. I want... I, <laughs> the fourth quarter. Whenever we try to gin up hospitality, whenever we try to bootstrap generosity, we inevitably fail. Because in order to have those things happen in our life, in order to be truly generous, in order to be truly hospitable, we have to have experienced true hospitality. We have to have experienced true generosity. And this is where the message of Jesus strikes at us. Because Jesus was not only someone who truly, generously, sacrificially loved strangers. He loved enemies. He loved proud people who loved to put themselves first. He loved people like Diotrephes and Justin and City Church. And not only did He loved us, love us, but He also died for us. You see, when we were still the enemies of God, Christ died for us. He dies on the cross so that He can graciously forgive you and I of our sins, including our pride, including the ways that we stifle generosity and hospitality. But not only does He generously forgive us for our sins, but He also welcomes us into His house. He adopts us as His sons and daughters. He shows us the ultimate hospitality of not just letting us come over, but rather building a house for us, of building a city that is to come. He welcomes us into His kingdom as His beloved sons and daughters, not based on anything that we have done, but based on what He has done for us. He shows us generosity. He shows us hospitality. And as we begin to see how meaningful that is, it changes us. It lets us experience generosity in a way that we've never experienced before. And when we experience that sort of generosity, that sort of hospitality, we're changed. So that when the opportunity presents itself, we too become generous. We too become hospitable. In big ways and in small. In our individual lives and in our life together as a church. And City Church, the beauty of this is that as we are changed by the message of Jesus, as we are changed by the good news that His cross was both the ultimate sacrifice so that we could become His sons and daughters, God gives us a promise that as we share our lives with one another, as we are loving of outsiders and strangers, as we are generous with our life, with our time, with our talents, and with our money, as we put that into practice in our lives, that our labor is not in vain. That God is doing something. God is doing something in your house and in your neighborhood in this church and in this city.